to Unlocking California Politics, a California Association of Realtors podcast. My name is Sanjay Wagley. I'm the Senior Vice President of Governmental Affairs for the California Association of Realtors. Today's podcast is about unlocking the complicated and evolving state of affordable home insurance and fire districts with our special guests, Amy Bach, Executive Director with United Policyholders, and Stephen Young, the Senior Vice President and General Counsel with Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of California. Welcome, Amy and Steve. Thanks so much for having us. Pleasure to be here. Amy, can you tell us a little about what United Policyholders is all about? Sure. Um, so it's a nonprofit organization based in the Bay Area um, that operates across the country. And since 1991, we've been focused on being an information resource for insurance consumers and an advocate for policyholders across the country with a special focus on disaster preparedness and recovery. Uh, so we are intimately familiar with the topic of today's program and really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be part of the discussion. And Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, the Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of California? Thanks, Sanjay. It's really, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, also to see my friend, Amy Bach. We've known each other uh, a long time and have an immense respect for her and her organization. Um, we are a uh, 501c6 nonprofit trade association representing, as our name would suggest, independent insurance agents and brokers in our state. Uh, you know, insurance is uh, customarily sold one or multiple of three ways, either directly by insurance companies like GEICO or USAA that don't have agents, by captive agency companies like State Farm or Allstate or Farmers where an agent represents those companies but only sells that one company's type of products. And then there are independent agents, my organization, which have the opportunity to represent and do business with multiple different insurance companies. Um, our members uh, are located everywhere in California, from the smallest towns to the largest cities. Our members sell every type of insurance, but we predominantly focus on property and liability insurance, both commercially and personally. So our members also are, have been extraordinarily hard hit by the crisis in availability and affordability in property insurance. Hey, thank you. And I noticed you both are, have stayed in San Francisco. We were hoping you would be able to come here and enjoy our 105 degrees um, in Sacramento, but maybe next time or the weekend, we're 110. But okay, so California has had an increase in both the number and intensity of wildfires in the state. One of the results of this, as you just mentioned, is the problem of affordability and availability of private homeowners insurance. And that's impacted many parts of our state. And it seems like more and more areas are being covered by this. Availability of affordable private market insurance is something our homeowners would like to see. Given the challenges the state faces with fire, it feels like you have a choice. Either availability means unaffordable or affordable means it's gonna be unavailable. One idea that continues to get traction is the idea of tying fire hardening or improvements to the homes to insurance availability. In that vein, the fe in February, the insurance commissioner announced new regulations where insurance companies would be required to factor in consumers and businesses wild fire safety actions into their pricing of residential and commercial coverage. In the past, we know the insurance industry has often opposed such proposals saying it's too hard to calculate or figure out uh, the effects of those on insurance pricing. So what do you think of these regulations? And I'll start with you, Steve. 
Well, I'll tell you that I, I've been doing what I do for over 30 years, and I've never encountered a a set of problems that was as complicated or difficult as the factors that are driving the current problems in the property insurance marketplace. You know, we have seen uh, this convergence of a just whole host of incredibly complicated problems, starting with global warming, with extreme drought, with, uh, you know, public utility uh, conduct that it, it can probably most charitably be described as grossly negligent. <laughs> we, we've seen massive population growth and building in the wildland urban interface areas. Um, we've, we know now that there have been decades of forest mismanagement, both at federal and state levels. Um, so there's more fuel than ever to burn. Um, you know, we now see, you know, rising costs with inflation and, and supply chain problems and everything else that are just driving the costs up exponentially. The other thing that I think is critically important to understand is that, and I'm certainly not an actuary, but it's my very strong impression that property insurance over time has been a highly predictable and a highly profitable line of, of insurance for companies to write. I mean, that's why you see, you know, the airwaves saturated with insurance company advertising, trying to sell you car insurance and, and, and home insurance, right? It's, it's been a highly profitable line of business because it's been so predictable and because total losses occur, at least historically, very rarely. What we've seen, especially here in California and in other Western states, we have seen a dramatic change in the magnitude of the potential losses. Now, not only are total losses frequent, but the losses incorporate not just single homes, but entire neighborhoods, even entire communities. You know, I'm forgetting the exact numbers, and Amy may have this number uh, uh, more immediately in mind, but just in California in four of the last five or six years, and just in the covered losses attributed to wildfire, insurance companies have paid out billions of dollars in claims. They paid out billions of dollars in claims, completely wiping out underwriting profit that would have been earned over decades. And so the magnitude of the risk that we are asking insurance companies to assume is far greater than anyone ever understood before. And I don't know if we're ever going to go back, frankly, to an environment that we were in even four or five years ago in terms of rates. The other thing about this crisis that makes it um, just very difficult, and my friend Amy and I may have different views on this, but Proposition 103 and the insurance rating laws are not helping things at all. And neither is the insurance commissioner's um, reluctance to use the tools that are at his disposal to solve some of these problems. I mean, insurance is a bizarre business because you're asking companies to price their product before they know what it's going to cost them to actually deliver it, right? And in California, since the enactment of Prop 103 in 1988, we've had a system in which insurance companies are required to get the advance permission of the Department of Insurance before it can use rates. That process of getting rate approval takes forever. 
it is a highly uh, adversarial process in which certain consumer groups always intervene in part because they can make millions of dollars in intervener fees by so doing. That's not Amy's group. Amy represents a very reputable organization. I'm not sure the same could be said of all of the groups that necessarily get involved in the radio approval process. But the, the point here is that from an insurance industry, industry perspective, at least, California is not a good place to do business because you don't have confidence that you can get the rate approval that you need to assume these risks. And I would submit that so long as the Department of Insurance artificially suppresses rate adequacy, these problems in affordability and availability are going to continue and they may even get worse. And Sanjay, coming back to your question, I haven't forgotten it about the <laughs> home hardening standards. Look, the, those regulations are okay. I mean, they strike me as being a fly on the tail of a water buffalo. They're, they're not going to have a dramatic impact in reopening markets. They, they will make it it's somewhat more difficult, I think, for insurance companies to price these things. But there are a number of other things that the insurance commissioner could do that are within his existing powers right now to reopen the market if he would only have the sort of political fortitude to, to take those actions. And the last thing I'll say, I know I've been talking for a long time here. The last thing I'll say is I don't want my comments to be uh, interpreted as a criticism just of the insurance commissioner currently. I mean, Mr. Laura has tried a number of, of things. He's done a number of things to try to help. But every elected insurance commissioner we've had since Prop 103 was put on the books has had this same great political reluctance to approve rates that are needed for uh, insurance companies to have some confidence that they can assume these risks without going bankrupt. Okay, thanks, Steve. Amy, let's start with the regulations and then let's go into um, Prop 103 and, and, and what you think about uh, what Steve was said about that. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sanjay. Um, so as far as regulations go, um, they're necessary, they're important. Um, my organization helped um, to bring bring the process into place that, that led to those regs. And the reason for that is uh, you, you need to have clear rules um, so that consumers can know that, uh, or property owners can know that if they invest time and money in risk reduction, such as changing out their roof, changing out their windows to put dual pane, creating defensible space, limbing trees, all the things that we know make it easier for firefighters to save homes. We need those property owners uh, to have the assurance that if they do those things, it's going to give them get them some break with their insurance company. Now, you could say, well, isn't it enough that their home would be less likely to burn. Well, okay, sure. But knowing human beings and, and knowing um, how many households are on a very uh, limited budget and um, and knowing, you know, just anything you, you watch, you know, people, um, you know, uh, elected officials, if they want to, if they're going to vote for infrastructure, it's not sexy. It's something you, you know, it's kind of like, geez, you know, if I'm going to spend money on something, um, let's say I'm a homeowner, 
you know, I'd rather spend money on beautifying my home than fixing, you know, replacing um, galvanized pipes with with copper, right? Like it's, you're gonna, you know, it's, you always want it, people are much more enthusiastic about um, spending on things that are gonna uh, improve their lives somehow. And there is definitely a perception, I think, out there and in, in the world that, you know, having to move your favorite rose bush and, you know, um, and having to change what you might think is per are perfectly good windows and having to, you know, ruin landscaping that you put money into. People need an incentive to do those things because they're not otherwise appealing. So just the idea alone that doing those things is going to save your home is it certainly is it should be a motivator, but it's it's not enough of a motivator, especially mm -hmm. because people do feel very frustrated. And you could see that that the way things are now, they're not getting rewarded by their insurance company for investing time and money into risk reduction improvements. So so we know we need to give uh, people that assurance in order to really move the needle um, across the state. And, and, and so I think, you know, again, insurance companies, some of them are starting to voluntarily offer rewards. So, you know, if you go on the California Department of Insurance website, now there's a button that you can mm -hmm. click on that will bring you to a list of all the insurance companies that are currently offering some sort of reward, whether it's generally a discount. Um, the, you mentioned, I think in the, um, some of your, your members may know um, that there's a program in Colorado called Wildfire mm -hmm. Partners. Correct. Uh, and my organization, um, for a couple of years now has been working on um, bringing similar programs to California. And there are now, uh, there's a pilot that Sonoma County is trying to launch um, and get going very similar. For that one, the reward that the homeowner gets is not a discount, but it's a, a renewal assurance. But again, that's a voluntary program. I think there's just a handful of insurers that are participating, but we all hold that up as a model because it shows what some insurers will agree to, which is, of course, really important. So getting back to the regs, they're very necessary because we just need a clear standard um, and clear rules. So all insurers can play by the same rules and so that um, we can give people that incentive, that that financial um, personal finance incentive uh, to do things that they otherwise might prefer not to do. Um, so there's that. Um, and another thing I like about the regulations is we listened. I think the department really did listen to the to the insurance companies. Um, I, I when they said, you know, don't you know, you know, and they also have I think said this to legislators. You know, we know that that passing a bill that would force us to give a fifteen percent discount or some mm -hmm. you know prescribed number would be politically make you look like a hero to some of your constituents. They'd say, great, you know, my my elected official got me a discount. But we heard insurance companies say, don't please don't do that because A, there's no there's no actual actual basis for that yet. You know, we we are we've learned a lot in the last few years about what you can do to prevent homes from burning. We know about which homes survived the campfire, which homes survived the Thomas fire um, in the Ventura area. And we're taking that information and as quickly as we can, um, you know, it, building it into community education programs about, okay, what are the features of your house that are gonna make it stronger? So, 
So I think, again, the regs are sound. I take, you know, as much, I of course have a lot of respect for Steve and, 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 I, and his members, independent agents, you know, like brokers, right? The kind of person that could, it's like, you know, a real estate broker can sell you any number of homes. An independent broker can sell you a number of different types of policies, whereas captive agents can only generally sell you one, right? So his members have always been my organization's go-to friends. When a problem like this arises, we'll, we'll always say, well, an independent agent is 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 going to be going to be your best first stop to try to get your your coverage replaced if you've been dropped. But I do take issue with him about the commissioner and about blaming Prop 103. I think um, the if we, you know, if we can just go another year um, without another kind of, you know, North Bay fire, right? <laughs> North, you know, you know, the North Bay fires is 7,000 structures, you know, camp, 18,000 structures. If we could, that's, a, I, I would love to keep it in the rear view mirror. You know, we've had fires. We had a number of fires. We got really lucky with the Caldor fire, um, you know, could have been a lot worse. I mean, there's been bad fires, but smaller scale, not as scary to insurers. Um, if we could just go another year, I think the market will continue to kind of heal. Um, and of course, we have the fair plan. So in summary, I'd say um, there's really good work being done. There's a there's a, a fairly healthy spirit of collaboration um, between um, uh, the Department of Insurance and I'd like to say insurance companies. Um, but I think, you know, Prop 103 is going to stick in the insurer's craw now. It's always going to be sort of like a button you push and they're going to say, well, it's Prop 103's fault. That was passed by the voters in 1988. And it's kept, it, it is, is, has kept, the market has been very stable up until these awful, you know, successive mega fires. So um, I don't think it's Prop 103's fault. As a matter of fact, I, uh, my understanding is that the Department of Insurance has granted 95% of the rate increases that insurers have been putting coming in for, and they've gotten a lot of rate. And you know that. Your members know that because you see the kind of premiums that people are now paying. So I don't really think it's fair to say that rate suppression is the problem. You know, clearly insurers, you know, they are able to put a catastrophe load in. They're able to go in and get automatic pretty much um, almost 7% rate increases and they have been coming in repeatedly. So I don't I don't think this is the fault of 103. I really think um, it's the mega fires that gave the executives the jitters and gave the reinsurers the jitters um, and 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 also also the modeling. You know, the, the insurers are hearing a lot um, now from vendors who sell them, who want to sell them um tools that are basically a fancy crystal ball looking into the future and and they're just they're, it, it's scary you know they see these projections and you know modelers are able to make them look really vivid you know like this is what this is what what you could be looking at in terms of dollars if there's another campfire or if there's a fire again in you know in malibu that that doesn't stop you know, that gets to the suburbs and same thing, you know, with Tahoe, if, you know, if they hadn't stopped the Calder fire and it really hit, um, you know, more like that's the kind of data that insurers look at and it makes them not want to, 
insurer homes. I, I honestly, I mean, I know they like to complain about Prop 103, but I really honestly don't think um, that's the major driver. So Amy, do you think then no changes are needed to Prop 103? I, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, geez, I, you know, um, it's, like, and specifically on, with respect to fire insurance. With, I mean, I, I, look, I, 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 I have heard that some insurers, you know, are reluctant to go in, you know, for a rate increase above 6.9 because it's going to trigger the hearing and they don't want to have to fight it out. But, you know, I mean, insurers, look, they took um, consumer watchdog all the way up to, you know, the states of in court to try to, you know, on a on a, on one of the state farm rate cases and they won. And, you know, I, I think when they want to bring their legal artillery, they do it. Um, so I don't think they're afraid, um, uh, you know, of going in and, and uh, you know, and I, I it is true that there are states that are, of course, that are a lot more lax and let insurers file and use, but those states are having a lot of problems too. So I don't know that, you know, more freedom is the, for rate increases is the answer here. And Steve, you you alluded to, you said that you think the commissioner has existing powers, which you, if he would use could help um, ameliorate the situation. What, what what are you referring to there? Well, num number one, just about Prop 103, um, you know, um, Prop 103 was sold to voters in 1988 on a series of false pretenses. It, it was people were told that they were going to get a 20% refund of all the insurance premiums that they paid on almost all forms of property and liability insurance. And that the only reason the insurance companies could get out of that is if they were substantially threatened with insolvency. That legal language on its face was unconstitutional. And the California Supreme Court essentially rewrote the initiative for the proponents in order to then uphold it. And it required the insurance department to promulgate a series of very complicated regulations trying to measure and evaluate insurance companies' rates of return for purposes of then evaluating their proposed rates. Those regulations were never uh, they, they were, in my view, always designed to overstate insurance company revenues and understate expenses. And so th there, there's simply an environment here where, and, and again, Prop 103, there's been reference here to 7% and 6.9%. Perhaps uh, car members know, but the, the law basically said that anytime an insurance company wanted to raise its rates more than 7%, in person lines that had to go through this hearing and that rate uh, proposed rate increases below that figure were not uh, susceptible or, or subject to those hearings. And I do agree with Amy that the department uh, has done, I think, a good job of giving relatively rapid approval to these small rate increases for many insurers. But again, because of the magnitude of the exposures that we're discussing, 7% of a rate doesn't necessarily get you very far. Um, and um, that the the other issue that's in play here, I mean, insurance companies, I think, are pretty are pretty uh, competent at assessing risk and figuring out how to cover it. But the problem again with the Prop One Hundred Three rating rules is insurance companies cannot use their cost of reinsurance, which is how insurers spread the risk. They, they like buy insurance themselves to diffuse part of the risk that they're undertaking. 
They are greatly limited in their ability to use or factor into their rate proposals modeling that would try to predict future losses. Instead, they're tied only to historic loss costs. Um, you know, the Fair Plan, the California Earthquake Authority, other entities can use that modeling, but the way the rules are written right now, insurance companies cannot. Uh, and so um, it's a very difficult rate environment, number one. And number two, there are also some significant restrictions on insurance company underwriting. Um, a bill that Mr. Lara uh, authored when he was a member of the state Senate gives the insurance commissioner the authority where the governor has declared a wildfire-related emergency to prevent insurance companies from canceling or non-renewing insurance policy. So they're required to stay on the hook for at least one year uh, in those zones. Now, that's, a, that's good news and also bad news for consumers, depending on where you live. If you are within one of these protected zones, then it's good news because the insurance company is required to stay on the hook for at least one year and a little longer if you've actually suffered a, a loss or a total loss. But if you are just outside that line, you're seeing your policy non-renewed all over the place because insurance companies are afraid that they're going to be stuck. I mean, we've just seen an example. Uh, I won't name the insurance company, but... At, in, in wildfires uh, that occurred in January, the Colorado fire in Monterey County, that happened in January. And for a variety of reasons, the governor didn't declare an emergency until July 1. Now, the, the department immediately effected one of these non-renewal orders. So good on the department for doing that. But the fact that there was a seven-month delay gave insurance companies lots of time to start non-renewing policies all over the place in those areas, which now they would be prohibited from non-renewing, but because the non-renewal notices were issued before the emergency declaration actually took effect, there are homeowners in all over Monterey County that are now without insurance, and they just, they just can't get insurance really at any price at this point. So it sounds like you kind of like the moratorium, so, sort of, but it's hard. It, de it, de it depends, Amy. <laughs> okay, if, if, all right. If you live in the zone, it's yeah. good for one year. But if you're outside the zone, and there are a lot more people who are living outside the zone than in, then it's not good. Yeah, I mean, again, the legislature, <clears throat> the, that was, you know, that the, the whole um, structure that allows, you know, the governor to declare the emergency and then gives the commissioner the authority to declare the moratorium. That was something that, you know, a tool that the legislature gave him um, and that that he's been using. And I think I'm sure a lot of your members are pretty relieved about it, Sanjay, because it's. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's I, I, I hear I hear Steve's point, but I think. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the situation would be a lot more dire, but for that, because I think some of what's happening is a panic reaction, which I understand. But the reason that I know that some of it is a panic reaction is because after the Oakland fire in 1991, you know, my organization had to start a program called Matchup with the city of Oakland and some independent agents um, because you know, in the aftermath of that fire, you know, which was a, a big one, you know, over 3000 and um, pretty high value homes, you know, a lot of people got non renewed. Um, and uh, we, you know, we were able to fix it, but we saw that it was a reaction, you know, to the numbers. 
Um, Amy, I also just wanted to ask you to respond to two of Steve's um, comments. One is about the issue of reinsurance. We've heard that from a couple of insurance companies and also to the is issue which um, regarding modeling, catastrophic modeling and sort of future modeling as opposed to just looking at the history. Um, so, um, you know, for, for the, for, you know, I don't know, you probably don't have a lot of insurance junkies out there, but, um, you know, if you are an insurance nerd like us, um, you know, that there's this, um, other sector in insurance beyond the primary insurers whose names we're all familiar with, uh, state farm farmers, et cetera, AAA. Um, there's, um, another sector called the reinsurance sector above them. And those are basically, those are entities that sell, um, the, the insurance to insurance companies, they pick up their high dollar exposure. So the insurers will will handle up to a certain um, attachment point on their own, and then they will buy reinsurance for their higher dollar exposures. Um, and the reinsurance industry is um, very lightly regulated, um, and the and it's been volatile. So the prices, the reinsurance um, prices have um, been, of course, have been gone way up. Um, and a lot of insurers that has created problems for them. And I think the reinsurers have also been pretty, um, you know, uh, I would say pretty strong with their, with their uh, California based customers and saying, you know, you guys should be, um, uh, you should be lobbying, um, to well for one thing they like they like models so we're going to talk about that in a minute so so the reinsurers have definitely um are driving some of what's going on i think they are driving some some of the non-renewals they're driving um some of the fiscal pain that's causing insurers to to write fewer homes and and all that um and and that's just um that's you know that that they're big money guys and that's how they see the world right they you know they don't like it when they have to pay right it's like it's a but and they pay in the mega fires you know because the the dollars get up to their attachment point so then you know they they um their money comes into play and 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 like any any you know high-end gambler they're going to pull out of a game that they think they might lose so so that that's been a problem um what what do they want i mean they um uh well for one thing they want to be able to they, reinsurers like want to charge what they charge and 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 they are free to do that um but it does have an effect um on the market and as far as but i don't have a solution you know because it's not a really that regulated an in industry other than um and, and this is a way down the road and hopefully we're not going to get there is um things you know have gotten so bad in florida that the state created their own public reinsurance facility, the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund, um, as a kind of a supplement to the private insurance reinsurance market, because similar situation happened there. Um, and we need primary insurers to have access to reinsurance. It's something that is a could happen in California if if things continue to go the way they're going and if the fair plan um just keeps getting bigger and and et cetera. Um, but I think that. So let's just talk about the modeling thing for a minute, because um, I, I am kind of hoping that you know that that as it does, the reinsurance um, industry will will soften some, and and the prices will start to come down again. And if we get through another year um, without another big mega fire, so um, but on the model side, so you know 
kind of like Prop 103, which is a little bit like, you know, mention Prop 103 to anybody who is in the insurance industry and they're going to say, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's the cause of all ills. Similarly, um, there has become a, um, a mantra and um, sort of a coordinated lobbying campaign um, to, to get um, California to allow the use of predictive rate modeling, right? Right now, California allows risk modeling. So like everybody, you know, your members are probably familiar now with fireline scores, right? Oh, my house has mm -hmm. a five, my house has a six, fireline score. That's a model, that is a risk model and insurers are using them all over the place, okay? They are modeling um, and, uh, pro and projecting, um, but what they're not allowed to use as a predictive rating model and the and the difference is um and it's it's basically it is because of prop 103 it's not considered to be uh, it's not one of the factors that that are allowed to be used um and and of course you talk about a complication like okay i understand that you know there's some very sophisticated scientists and vendors data data scientists that have have convinced insurance companies and reinsurance companies that using their rate model, their predictive rate model, is going to give the insurers a more predictable um, financial outcome. But it also has a big downside for consumers because if you look at what happened in Florida when RMS, um, which is one of the was a modeling company, one of the early ones, they when they changed their model. Um, and, and, and unrolled a new model 11, at, um, it, it just blew up the Florida market and prices went completely out of line. And so that's the risk that the, I think is, is what, what, what makes the commissioner in California want to hold the line against allowing predictive rate modeling because it can make rates go really bad. They can, it can really spike the rates. Um, because again, it's it's um it's a prediction, right? Mm -hmm. It's not based, you know, traditionally we've we've held insurers to history. And you know, they're saying, well, history's not a, a good predictor anymore because of climate change. Okay, I get that. The problem is allowing them to to use these models developed by vendors for insurers. We fear, I fear as a as a property owner advocate a policyholder advocate that 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 they're too susceptible to you turn the dial a little to justify a higher rate you please your you know you're a vendor you're a modeling vendor you want your your insurance client to be happy and you know they you know you're going to err high you're not going to err low you're going to say yeah you probably need to collect more rate based on our projection not less and and that that to me makes me extremely nervous. And I think that the commissioner shares that same concern. And that's why he's trying to hold the line about um, not allowing insurers to use predictive rate models in their rate base. And and I think he's just trying to, you know, I honestly think he's trying to keep the market stable. Um, but insurers are really chomping at the bit on this issue and they bring it up all the time. You know, just maybe looking into the future, maybe it's not possible, but um, with respect to something like this type of modeling, you, Amy, you mentioned the the issues of you know tweaking the model or 
you know, vendors may be looking at who their biggest clients are and maybe that there's some inevitable issues that could arise in that case. And I'll go to you, Steve, next on this and back to you, Amy. Do you think there's a possibility of a model that, for example, the insurance industry and the insurance commissioners could come to agree with as a predictive model? Or is that is that, is, is that in the realm of possibility or is that uh, or not? <laughs> I'll start you, with you, Steve. Well, I I don't I don't know. I, it's certainly within the realm of the possible, but it, it requires a commissioner. We'll just speak hypothetically, not about not about any particular individual. It requires a commissioner to make some really hard decisions that are almost inevitably going to cause prices to rise. Nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to pay it. I get that. I mean, I totally get that. Um, but again, you know, there are four billion reasons why. You know, rates are not going back to the levels that they were at before the magnitude of these wildfire catastrophes has become abundantly clear. I mean, that's the amount of dollars the insurance companies pay just in California, just related to wildfires, just uninsured losses in those wildfires in California. That is not sustainable. Nobody can afford to continue paying those sort of losses. The, the modeling that is used all over the country, that's used here in California by the California Earthquake Authority, by the FAIR plan, that, that's the same thing that insurance companies want to be able to use here again, because we've been in a rate, a very politicized rate environment where insurance companies have to provide a product before they know how much it's going to cost them to actually deliver it, right? And the rate modeling that insurers want to use are subject to complete and full examination by the Department of Insurance and by their approval as well. So I, I, I don't know if I share Amy's concern that there's going to be some secret, you know, uh, Venezuelan inspired, you know, uh, bug put into the voting machine here that's going <laughs> to change the actual result or the numbers. Um, I do want to I, I do want to come back really quickly, Sanjay, to, to one other question you asked a moment ago, and I'll let Amy respond to this as well. But, you know, the commissioner does have the authority right now to create either market action plans or joint underwriting authorities, which um, Amy understands. And again, the, the, she and I are, are of a class in terms of insurance nerds, but there are, there are sort of statutory mechanisms available if the commissioner wants to go down that route. But fundamentally, um, their insurance companies uh, have to have some confidence that they can get the rate necessary to pay these claims. Um, and until until that happens, I think it's going to be really difficult for this um, problem in availability and affordability to quickly resolve. Amy, so two things. One is the possibility of a state, uh, like a consensus model. And secondly, uh, with, with respect to Steve's comments about the difficulty in getting some sort of affordable insurance. I mean, I, I think a, I think a, a public model, um, you know, some sort of uh, actually is a great, it could be great, um, you know, getting, getting to that and getting to, you know, um, is a whole nother question, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah. That, that would be good. Um, because it's similar to the thinking about the regs. It's like, you know, you just kind of want to have the rules be clear because sometimes competition, I mean, competition generally is is good for consumers, except for the issue of underinsurance, where I think 
um, competition between insurers has led a lot of dwellings to be underinsured in this state. Um, but other than that, um, I, I think that's a great idea. And I will tell you, you know, I'm always trying to, I'm for peace, right? So I'm always trying to broker peace between insurers and, you know, the department, wherever I can, right? And consumers. Um, and, and you know, when this, when the, when I started to really, um, you know, hear insurers, you know, at the national level say, oh, you know, if we could only be allowed to use um, predictive, you know, rate models in our, in our, in California, you know, it would make such a big difference. Of course, I went right to the commissioner's team and said, like, you know, what do you guys think? And, and I have to say, like, I mean, no one could want a stable, healthy market more than the Department of Insurance, right? I mean, that's their goal, right, is to have um, it, it be an environment that insurers want to do business in and that consumers are, th you know, all right, through which insurers can, can access coverage. And, and I think, you know, they just, they just um, basically said what I have said, which is um, that the that the downside um, is is just too great a downside. So um, there's that. I mean, I think. Look, I my organization, we are more and more. Um, I would say every week, somebody from my staff is going to speak at a community group or a a public forum where we are giving people. It guidance. Um, and we have been saying for years, the days of paying under $1,000 for your home insurance in California are over um, and they're not coming back. You know, So we have been preparing Californians um, to pay more for their home insurance. And I think I'm comfortable you know, as a consumer advocate, honestly saying to people, the risk has increased and there's just no getting around it. So you're going to have to pay more. That's part of our reality. That is a, that is a, um, that is a, a facet of climate change. Um, and also the real estate market and, and everything being more expensive today. Um, and I think people understand that. Um, but there's a difference between paying $2,000 a, a year for your insurance and paying $12,000 a year, right? It's a huge difference. So I think, you know, we're looking for that median, that happy median. And I, and again, like, you know, there's a difference between people who are coming to the risk, meaning building in the wooey or buying a place in the wooey, knowing, knowing where we are today, knowing, you know, you heard what Steve was saying about, um, you know, our forests, you know, we don't let them burn. And so, and we've had a drought. So if you come to the risk, I think, you know, you're gonna, you're, you should be looking at a higher premium than somebody who's been, who didn't come to the risk, but just happens to have been there and the risk changed, right? I somehow feel there's a difference. I don't think we really have any way right now to, re, to, to distinguish between people who've come versus who were here. Uh, but I, I do think that would be appropriate. I think, again, um, where my organization is working the hardest, I'd say, um, is on promoting risk reduction and trying to, and, and you know, and facilitating it. Because again, we're listening to the insurers, you know, when they said um, a number of years ago, uh, we just don't believe the science that, 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 that you can, there's much you can do at all to save a home. Um, and we we heard that and the depart and the um and and we I had a I've started a working group a couple of years ago 
where um, we've been, we've got a lot of fire scientists and 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 the institute IBHS Institute for Home and Business Safety have been participating. And since that time, and they are funded by the insurance industry, the IBHS has come over to our side and said, yeah, no, there are things, there are things you can do um, to make it less likely that a home's gonna gonna burn. And so um, we got that kind of, we got a lot of good agreement there. There are things you can do. Um, no one's saying it's ever a sure thing, obviously. And we've all seen fire behavior and it's pretty powerful. Um, but but you can you can increase your your chances of of having your home survive. Now we are listening to insurers. They're saying, well, we it's not enough. It's great if you do it at your property, but if your neighbor hasn't done anything, your home's still going to burn. So now we're focusing on getting as many people as possible in wooey areas to participate in risk reduction, so that. Again, we're trying, we, we hear insurers, we cannot argue with them that the risk isn't greater. It clearly is, you know, so, so what we're, okay, so what can we do? Let's try to reduce it. Let's try to do everything we can to reduce it. So that's where a lot of my, my team's energy is going. And it's, it's not easy, you know, because we're just starting to get programs in place to help people, you know, mm -hmm. people who can't limb their trees, people who don't have the money to retrofit but they would they will if they get help and there's a tremendous amount of money now um flowing into the wildfire risk reduction um uh work streams but it's going to take a while um and and you know the question is can we can we keep things relatively stable um until we get there and unfortunately a lot of people now you know who've paid off their mortgages are going bare which is a yeah. whole other problem yeah, just a huge problem. Let, let, if I can put you on the spot, Amy, for just a second. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you may remember a couple of years ago in the legislature, there was a market action plan bill being promoted by the Personal Insurance Federation and, and other industry organizations that would have created on a pilot basis, uh, you know, some some slightly different rate approval and especially time approval rules and i'm just wondering you know what your organization would think about a a pilot approach that would apply you know in areas where uh one of these wildfire emergency zones had been declared that was limited in time that would either permit on a trial basis some of these greater rate considerations or would shorten the timeline for rate decision you know, by the Department of Insurance or something like that to try to give insurers an incentive to come back into and, and to renew policies in these wildland urban interface areas? Well, uh, well, certainly uh, if, you know, for fast tracking the, the, the prior approval process, you know, you want to give the department um, some additional resources. I am always good with that. Um, I you know i it makes me nervous for um given how given where premiums are now um in a lot of areas what we're getting these reports that are like i don't know how people are dealing with it honestly eight thousand you know twelve thousand or or more um, frankly we, more. we hear very very high and, and just, we're not talking it, about fair plan yeah and i just well, keep it, it's more you're paying more but don't forget in most cases you're also getting dramatically less coverage 
well, that too, <laughs> that too, um, that too. So, you know, anything that would make that, that could aggravate that, it definitely makes me nervous. I have heard um, people say that insurers are coming in for more rate, you know, than they might otherwise need um, because, um, I mean, they're coming in repeatedly for 6.9, you know, and often. Um, and that maybe if they were allowed, you know, to use the models that they wouldn't have to do that. Again, I just, you know, looking at the market the way it is now, I just don't see more rate rate increase freedom as an answer just because of where rates are. It just can't, I mean, how much higher can they go? Really? Oh, they, yeah, they could go a lot higher. The, the problem is when it takes a year and a half or more to get things out of the Department of Insurance, Amy, though, by, by the time you get a rate decision, it's already inadequate. And, and and the other thing that we haven't discussed here is that again, I have some sympathy for the you know political considerations that have to go into any commissioner's decision. But you know, the Department of Insurance has just announced they're not going to approve any rate increases, period, in in auto insurance. I mean, that's going to be the next crisis because auto insurers with an increase in traffic, with the increase in claims, with the increase of repair costs and everything else are now dying because they can't get rates. So they're now, insurance companies are now taking action to zero out commissions paid to my members for the sale of new policy because they're trying to shut off the new flow of any additional business. Hmm. Um, well, I, I do know that- That'll uh, be our next podcast, Sanjay. Yeah, I, I know <laughs> that, Well, yeah. it's for our agents to drive around. You know. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I know that that there's been a lot of frustration at the department that, you know, insurers did not um, re refund, you know, the, as much as they should for what they saved during during the COVID, you know, the, the first year and a half of COVID. But I can't I, I don't want to speak to that. I mean, that does sound um, problematic, but let's, you know. Um, like you said, maybe not. We'll, we'll solve that problem after we get the property market reopened. <laughs> yeah. There, there are two more things I want to just talk about real quick. One is in a lot of areas for our members, Fair Plan is now the default. There is no private market insurance available. Um, I know Fair Plan is a fully, they're able to to take into account all the various factors and, and you know, price accordingly. Um, any thing that you think would allow for that plan to be more affordable or to to have a insurance of last resort that might be somewhat more affordable than the current existing plan i you know the fair plan is everyone's favorite punching bag um but of course thank goodness we have it um it's a incredible lifeline um and um one thing I, I guess I'm interested in is giving the the fair plan access to some amount of publicly provided reinsurance, a backstop of some kind, because they're competitively, they have one hand tied behind their back, right? They have to take all comers. They cannot say no, right? So they have to take the risks that, you know, that, that insurers are, are, you know, are shedding. Um, so I would say that's one thing. Um, uh, and, you know, we want to see there was, you know, we want to see them operate uh, a lot more efficiently. You know, they're they rely very heavily on um, insurance defense law firms to, you know, control some of their claim handling. And that's drawn a lot of litigation. I think it's kind of fomented litigation um, because they've played hardball on claims and then they've gotten sued. Um, so there's that. Um, but I think that. Um, that 
I, you know, I think the basic structure of the fair plan actually is good. It spreads, you know, the, the, the risks that insurers don't want. It spread, it makes every insurer, if they want to do business in the state, they have to take a little bit of the fair plan business that they don't want. So I think it's fundamentally sound. Um, I think that it, it does need to really beef up its operations. It was like a, you know, it was like a backwater type of a deal, right? They were net, they were inhaling this kind of volume. Right. They didn't have that many people working there. That was like in the, and they still don't have enough. Um, so they do outsource a lot. And I think that's a very, you know, it's an expensive way to function. Yeah. Steve. Well, I, I agree with Amy that I think the fair plan has done uh, you know, both conceptually and in uh, application has done a really remarkable job since its creation in the 1960s to provide basic property insurance to people who can't get it from the regular admitted market. We think that's a sound sort of function of the plan. We hope that that will continue. Um, you know, um, there's no question that the fair plan has become the market of only resort in many cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, my members tell me that all the time. Yeah. And we get that from our members all the time. Yeah, it's awful. And the, and the thing is, you know, the fair plan, uh, one has very limited coverage and there are a couple of anomalies just in the way the actual insurance contract is written that are very problematic. For example, um, you know, it, it, you, you get to choose when you're buying a dwelling policy, whether you want a replacement cost or actual cash value policy. And if you are buying a replacement cost, which most people want, um, there's something called a co-insurance clause that basically says that, look, it, it, you have to insure the value. If, if you're claiming that the replacement cost of your house is $50,000 and it's actually, you know, $300,000, we're going to penalize you because you've paid so much less in premium. So we're only going to give you like one sixth of the coverage that you otherwise would have, right? That, that That's the concept behind this co-insurance clause. But the problem is because coverage is capped at $3 million, um, it's very easy to go over $3 million in terms of all of the potential losses that go into a total loss. And so you're not even getting $3 million in most cases. You're getting only a percentage if the total value is above $3 million. So, you know, we have suggested to the commissioner and to the fair plan that that clause be modified. And there is another sort of bizarre clause in the contract that deals what's called the other insurance clause that is very confusing in terms of whether or not the fair plan pays the first dollar of claim. We think it should. We think it should be absolutely clear that the fair plan pays the first dollar of losses. Because if you can do that, if you make that clear, then it becomes much easier to attract other insurers mm -hmm. to offer higher limits or additional coverages to sort of fit, you know, perfectly within the fair plan structure. So we think that would be a good idea as well. But we we have we do not necessarily uh, agree with the commissioner's view that the fair plan should be permitted to write full coverage and to just act like any other insurance company. Because we think, frankly, the danger of that is that the fair plan will become even more of a dumping ground for the really worst business. It almost gives insurance companies more of an out not to write policy. So we don't support that. But we think that and other changes in the fair plan would be helpful. And, and you know, the one other thing I want to say about the fair plan, they, they've got a new president, a woman named Victoria Roach uh, became president just a few months ago. And um, 
Amy, I don't know if you've had any dealings with her or her team, but I'm very impressed by her. I think she, I think she's the right person in this job at the right time. I think she understands that the fair plan needs to become far more efficient in its operations. Like right now, for example, agents complain to me all the time because when they're when they're trying to sell a fair plan policy, yeah. they can't trans they can't electronically transmit all of the consumer data. Everything has to be rekeyed. It's 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 like it's like 1972. Yeah, uh, it's they probably are using the same processes that they developed. Yeah, yeah I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It's maybe it's 1992, but 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 Victoria and her team they understand that they've got to modernize the fair plan. They've got to make it more efficient. They've got to make it far more transparent to consumers, to brokers, to everybody. And I I'm confident if if she's given time that they'll that she'll, she'll see some real improvements in that. Amy, based on your nodding, it sounds like you agree with a lot of what Steve said with respect to FAIR. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, we, there was just a hearing, you know, the commissioner held a hearing and Victoria was there and, um, and, and you know, we heard a lot of criticism, but I think um, that hopefully she and her team heard it and, and, are, and are acting on it. And I think, um, uh, you know, I think maybe a lot of us would like to avoid the legislature um, bringing a fix. We'd like to, you know, very much like with the situation we've got with the discounts, you know, we'd like to see insurers voluntarily implement them. We'd like to see the fair plan voluntarily, um, you know, uh, uh, step up its game. And and again, I think I think they need more staff I, that I feel very strongly about. Um, so I think I think they can rise to the occasion, um, but they've got some work to do. And, you know, they've got a guy, Phil Irwin, who is um, an independent agent who um, Victoria's predecessor brought in to help with, um, I think, public relations. Um, and he's been incredibly um, generous with his expertise. So like when my organization records a, a consumer help webinar on shopping in this very challenging market, you know, Phil has been on my panel, as have some of your members, um, to to answer questions and has been cooperative. So I think, I think the fair plan um, has heard the the as her, you know they they know what the complaints are. They're still being pretty aggressive, and you know they've got two lawsuits going against the Department of Insurance, which I don't think is a great sign. Um, but hopefully, they will continue to improve their operation um, to meet. Uh, the the demand that's that's out there um, at this time. And Amy, how do you feel about them offering more comprehensive plans? You know, when I first heard about, you know, the idea that they, you know, I think it was Commissioner Jones, uh, Lara's predecessor, um, and then there's somebody on my staff that said, oh my God, they can barely, you know, adjust the claims they have now. Just imagine <laughs> if they had to adjust liability claims, oi. You know, but um, but actually, I guess the judge agreed with that because um, that issue was kind of up in the air. I really, I, I would like to see them offer a regular HO3 type of a product, like a basic product product because you know how this is um sanjay for your members and and for all of us uh, you know it, like simplicity is best right one policy is best right i mean one of the things that that is you know we've all seen it you know as soon as they allowed insurers to to to, to take earthquake out um 
then people don't buy it anymore because it requires you to buy two policies and pay two commissions and have two, you know, bills and two contracts. And it's just more complicated, more confusing. Um, so on balance, you know, um, right now, you know, people can buy a fair plan policy and then they can buy the second product, a DIC, a difference in condition product. And we don't see a huge take up rate for that among regular people. I mean, you it like the super um, you know, people who are very on top of their personal finances, they'll shell out the extra thousand for a DIC on top of what they're paying for their fair plan policy, but or whatever their the DIC will cost. But again, it's not ideal. We would much rather have there be one product. And and I, I you know, I, I'm not gonna argue we don't, of course, the private market, you know, is gonna deliver more benefits in terms of, you know, when you have competitive, you know, the forces of you know, insurers saying, I'm gonna. I'm going to enhance my product, you know, coverage wise to make it more attractive. And um, we love that. And computer, you know, consumers benefit from that. Um, and we did, we not, you know, I'm not like, oh, the fair plan should just, you know, never mind the private market. We'll just have a government supported program. But the reality is the fair plan is not a government supported program. It is the right. insurance industry. It is comprised of insurers. So it's going to stay a patch. It's, I don't think it's ever going to be um, competitive, you know, um, in the market. So um, I think that, 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 um, you know, just having them offer basic coverage um it makes a lot of sense so in the last you know couple of minutes what's the grand solution now <laughs> what, <laughs> what i am going to ask is either legislatively regulatory what are two things or not, not necessarily two things what do you think could actually is achievable hopefully um you know the two you know between the various groups and stakeholders that could actually help um, affordability and availability. And I'll start with you, Steve. Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, number number one, um, thank you, Sanjay, and thank you to the California Association of Realtors for the opportunity to have this discussion. Um, there is no easy solution. There is no right. easy answer. I mean, um, we, we, some of us were joking the other day that, that the way to solve this problem is to have wildfires suddenly start uh, uh, spontaneously happening in inner city Los Angeles and San Francisco, because uh, if this problem were not limited to a large degree to the wildland urban interface areas that are mostly represented by Republicans, there might be greater <laughs> impetus in the legislature for an immediate solution. Um, but I, I, I do think that, that we continue to, to be very interested in trying to find a solution. My members live in California. We aren't going anyplace. I, you know, insurance companies can decide they're not going to write in Monterey County. They can go sell insurance policies in Ohio or Maine or wherever they want. Mm. We're not going anywhere. And, and that's why I think my members have been so distressed by these problems. It's not just because they don't have a product to sell. It's because they can't help their neighbors. They can't help their friends right. who suddenly are left out in the cold or are getting the bills that we talked about earlier, where they're paying 10 times more for coverage or more getting less coverage, or if they can even get it at all. So it's, this is a, a big problem we're trying to solve that we continue to believe 
that some sort of limited pilot program, some sort of limited trial that would expedite departmental review of rate applications that would permit insurance companies to factor in their best estimate subject to regulator approval and analysis of the actual losses that they are likely to pay and then have some opportunity to get an actuarially adequate rate that is neither excessive nor inadequate nor unfairly discriminatory it is the answer. But it, we, we can't just continue to use the existing prior approval regulatory structure and just hope that it's going to get better. That we, we need to try something. We need to do something, even if it's on a very limited short-term basis, only in the wildland urban uh, interface areas where there have been wildfires or something. But if we can address it in that way, we think that might buy us enough time for you know, all parties to then sort of resolve these issues. Thanks, Steve. Amy? So like all complicated problems, I think it requires a multi-level solution. I think we're on the road. Um, the first one is do everything possible to reduce the underlying risk um, that is causing the market to be um, so as weak as it is. Um, and and I think we're on that road. I'd like to see insurers, um, I'd like to see all insurers um, voluntarily uh, offer rewards to incentivize people um, to do that. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, discouraging building in the WUI just um, and some kind of um, some kind of a um, of a of an economic disincentive um, for new construction in the WUI makes sense. I know that's probably a sensitive topic for your members, but that is a sensitive topic. <laughs> but yeah, sure it is. And I'm not in that world. I'm just saying that right. we keep hearing insurers say, "Well, there's so many more people living in you know in these areas." Yeah. So I guess you know the argument is that there should be fewer. But um, and I think that that. Um, you know the the um the, for a while there we thought takeout credits the, the fair plan there's a takeout credit thing where you know if a private company takes um takes risks out of the fair plan they get um it it can benefit them financially I, you know that that program is really still relatively new i'd like to see that um a little bit more um promoted i guess i i have seen some blue sky with some entrepreneurial entrance into the market. Um, Axios, there's just a new entrant um, and there's um, Pure and um, and I think, you know, um, California remains a very attractive place to do business, even with the with the downsides. There's a lot of good looking, you know, properties in this state that insurers want to um, want as clients. So I, I think um, I, I'm not a Pollyanna. I think you know that we um, that we've got uh, challenges on our hands, uh, but I think that um, that we are on the road. Um, there's there's a lot going on with forest management. There's a like I said earlier, there's a lot of money um, that's now being made available in the form of grants, um, and uh, there's a lot of action to make more and more communities participants in this fire safe um right. get this fire safe designation and then IBHS rolled out their wildfire prepared home program 
Um, so there's there's things, good things happening. Um, and again, I think a lot of it comes down to, can we just please get through another another year without a mega fire? And, and I think um, we'll all be in a lot better shape. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Steve. This has been a very uh, illuminating discussion. So, and hopefully our members get, I think, the biggest takeaway is probably going to be regarding the complexity of the situation, which I think they all get. Everybody gets and why this, this situation is so difficult for all of us. Yep. All right. Again, thank you so much for joining us with this podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Sanjay. Disclaimer. The purpose of this podcast brought to you by the California Association of Realtors, CAR, is to provide general and educational information and opinions from a wide range of perspectives regarding politics, voting, elections, legislative issues, and more. The opinions, beliefs, and views expressed by guests or participants of this podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, or views of CAR, its affiliates, their respective directors, officers, or employees. Reference to any individual or entity does not constitute an endorsement, recommendation, or any other position or opinion regarding that entity or individual by CAR. This podcast does not constitute professional advice or services of any kind. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.